So that is from uh, the TV show, This Is Us, which some of you may have seen. It's a little maybe heavy, and there's lots of things going on. But uh, if I don't know you, my name is uh, David Hershey. I am, uh, among other things, I serve as the lead deacon here at Koinos. And uh, yeah, once again, that is from the hit NBC television show, This Is Us, just finished uh, their second season. That episode aired a couple months ago, and uh, it's a pretty good show. It definitely tries to hit you on every emotional level, and if it doesn't, NBC frequently runs the hashtag share the moment at the bottom of the screen to encourage you that if you're not crying already, you probably should be. So the show, just if you haven't seen it, uh, it is it kind of tells a story of these this family, but from different points in their life. So there are a number of scenes when uh, Mandy Moore and her husband, who has since deceased, Jack, when they're younger and their kids are eight or nine. There's also parts of the show that show when their kids are teenagers. And then, of course, as we saw, there's parts of the show that uh, give us images and pictures from when their kids are in their mid-30s. There's Kevin, there's Kate, and then there's Randall. And as you saw, of course, uh, well, not of course, but... um, they were going to have triplets. They lost one of the babies, but they found a baby at the hospital. They've been abandoned. They were like, we already have three of everything, so they adopted Randall. So those three kids um, grew up together. And in the show, the figure of Jack, the, the father, looms kind of large over everything. He is seen as perfect. He always has like the right thing to say at the right moment. And I have to admit that when I talk to my kids as I've been watching this show, sometimes I feel like I'm in the show and I have this like music playing in the background and I'm trying to imagine that like the next thing I say, they're going to look back on in their 30s and this is going to be like this huge moment because again, it really is pushing the emotion into you. But in this scene, uh, Kevin is trying to discuss some of the darker things uh, of, his, of his father, some of the things that are not comfortable to bring up because it's just easier maybe to avoid them or maybe to not talk about them. Kevin wants to talk about how his father's uh, alcoholism may have contributed to his own struggles with addiction. Uh, Maybe his sister Kate, who struggles with a food addiction, maybe she can trace that biologically in some way to her father. Maybe this huge man, for all of his perfections, also had some flaws, which he passed on to his family. And... It's not easy to talk about those things. This leads to conflict. This leads to anger. This leads to tears. And I think one of the reasons why the show This Is Us has become so popular is because it reflects to us in some way that the people that are closest to us, hopefully the people that, uh, whether it's our family or friends, the people that love us the most are also the people who frequently are the ones that can hurt us the most, that some of our deepest and most stark conflicts come when those people who love us the most, with, with those people who we are closest to. So this morning we are uh, continuing a series here at Koinos called Waging Peace. Uh, two weeks ago was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And from that, uh, last week Tim discussed waging peace with God, talked about how through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has made peace with us. Talked about how uh, because of what God has done, when we hear that voice in our head telling us that we're not good enough, that we're not loved, that we know that voice is not true, that God loves us and is at peace with us. And this morning, I'm going to move on to looking at how we can then take those things we've looked at 
through the resurrection of Jesus, through waging peace with God, and, and look out and apply that to waging peace with other people. So, in essence, I might say, or I could say, that God loves us just the way we are. But along with that, God also wants us to become something better. Just as I love my children just the way they are, I want them to mature and to grow. I don't want them to stay children. So God loves us just the way we are, but wants us to grow and to change and to become better. And part of that is learning how to resolve conflicts with other people. So as God comes to us to wage peace with us, then we are to emulate that and to wage peace with others by going to them, by not avoiding conflict, by seeking to make things right with those around us. So I'm going to read two passages of Scripture from uh, the Gospel of Matthew that are teachings of Jesus that go right to this issue of waging peace with others. The first one is Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6 and verse 12. This comes from a section of teaching that Jesus gave what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read that to you. It starts in verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Then verse 12 says, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And then about 10 chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus says, uh, gives another teaching that I think really ties in with Uh, what it looks like to wage peace. He says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So there's a lot there. Uh, As I was preparing this week, what I ended up with is about a a number of points. I'm not going to say how many because then you'll start counting and you know trying to guess when we're going to be done. But a number of just little nuggets of wisdom we can draw from this series of teaching that I think give us some good ideas for how we can wage peace with others. And the first one is simply that we can replace our tendency to judge with being patient. When Jesus says in the very first verse I read, do not judge or you too will be judged. I think it's so easy to want to judge people when we come in contact with them or when we hear about them. And the challenge is to step back and take a deep breath and to employ a little bit of patience. So last week, I visited a church. I work over at Penn State Berks, and I oversee the Christian ministry on campus. And I have different churches and individuals who give money so that I can be paid to do that. And occasionally, I'll visit some of the churches that support the ministry, And I talk about what's going on on campus, what we're doing, how it's going, share some stories, thank them, and all that. So last week I visited a church, and I basically say roughly the same thing every time I visit one of these churches. And I did my thing, like I'm I'm doing now. And after I was done, I started to walk towards the back to greet people and shake hands and say thank you for, you know, having me and all that stuff. And this older gentleman comes walking up the front aisle to talk to me. And... 
he comes up to me and he starts yelling at me like legitimate reaming me out yelling at me like I have never been yelled at before since I was a child maybe like I mean and I was it was a little it was intimate it was intense and the reason he was yelling at me was I guess as I was wandering during my talk in the morning I spent more of my time like this and he was sitting over there and he said that I had intentionally like he took that as a personal insult that I had not been speaking to the people on this side and he told me that I had essentially only done half of my job because I only preached to half the half the 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 audience and as he was yelling at me I mean I'm used to like a little conflict I mean we do Q&A here at Koinos and every now and then we get some pretty intense questions that are not necessarily comfortable so like I'm ready for a little bit of like I didn't agree with what you said there but like yelling at me I was let's just say my fight or flight response was uh kicking in if you may have heard of this before it's it's these biological chemical tendencies that I am really not qualified to explain but basically as a species or a lot of other animals when we're faced with a threat to our safety we kick into just very base animal instincts to either run away or to fight so I'm fa- this guy's yelling at me and my mind is like okay how can I leave as quickly as possible and just go home and be by myself because this is scary and I don't like this my mind is also working is like is there something I can say that like he won't really get that I'm being mean to him too but like I'll get it so I can feel better about myself later that's kind of like a fight because I don't want to like you know ruin my relationship with this church that contributes money so like fight or flight right uh, the psycholo- uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt actually Haidt Haidt I'm not sure I say it uh, he talks about in a book called The Righteous Mind he likens our fight or flight response to uh, he uses this imagery of a rider on an elephant which I think is really interesting uh, and helpful he talks about how our reasonable the reasonable part of us is the rider the person on the elephant but the emotions and the uh, intuitions is the elephant so what he says is that when we're going through life and we face a conflict an attack something like that in our path before our reason can even kick in the elephant moves one direction or the other. And what he draws from this is that, well, I'm going to go ahead and read a quote to you. He describes this um, in his book. He says, The bottom line is that human minds, like animal minds, are constantly reacting intuitively to everything they perceive and basing their responses on those reactions. Within the first second of seeing, hearing, or meeting another person, the elephant has already begun to lean toward or away and that lean influences what you do and think next. Intuition comes first. So, this is how we are. And he even talks about how, like, a lot of times when we have an argument with people, our elephant has already moved. So what we like to think is us being reasonable people is our minds actually just justifying what we already believe. So, I'm sure none of us do that. We're all reasonable people. But think about arguments you have. Like, you don't want to lose. You don't want to be wrong. So you're, you've already chosen what you believe, and you're going to just find the reasonable ways to defend that view. Kind of what he's talking about here. And when I'm having this, when this man's yelling at me, my elephant is turning, and my reason is running to catch up. And in that moment, I'm not a reasonable person. This happens to all of us. Maybe you're driving to see your family. 
and your fight or flight response is kicking in. Maybe you walk into the house on a holiday to your family and your mother or father or an in-law, somebody, they say that thing and your elephant moves and your reasons chasing to catch up, fight or flight response is kicking in. Sitting in your office before a big meeting, having a discussion with somebody, hearing a political or religious opinion that differs from yours, the elephant moves, fight or flight kicks in, and reason is way behind. Thankfully, I didn't say anything to this man other than, I'm sorry that that happened, that you felt that way. So I guess in that moment, I had patience. I took a deep breath. I tried to have my rider get control of my elephant and steer it back to the middle. And I'm thankful that I did because here's something I didn't know in the moment. And, if I, and, and I learned this later. Uh, a, gentleman, a man came up to me after, uh, and kind of took this man away and was like, here, come here, mister, whatever your name is. Let's go over here. And he came back and he said, that guy has serious mental issues. He's suffering from dementia. He's gone to this church for decades. He's given money. He's really upset because the cross in the front of the church, we put a screen in front of it. He yelled at the pastor about that. He yells at the pastor apparently like all the time. So I guess I should feel like, like welcome. <laughs> but that makes me realize that there are so many situations. And this is one, I'm, I'm sharing one where I guess I did okay, but I'm, there's plenty where I don't where we're faced with a conflict and we just, before we say anything, before we try to fight to win, to save faced, maybe the best thing we can do when we are in the beginning of these moments of wanting to wage peace with others is simply take a deep breath, have patience, not say anything, and let the rider gain control of the elephant once again. Proverbs twelve sixteen says, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. If we want to wage peace with people, sometimes, again, we just need to be quiet and take a moment to get our head in the right place. Well, the second thing we can then get from Jesus' teachings here is he begins with this warning against judging, and then he talks about taking the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck from someone else's eye. And from this, I would gather that it's really important before we try to fix the problems of other people or the problems of the world to start fixing the problems of ourselves. I wear contacts, so I've had a speck or a dust or something in my eye, and it's not like, if, that, if you've ever experienced this, it's not like that's a minor thing. Like, if you get a piece of dust or dirt in your contact, it feels like there's a dagger there. Like, that hurts a lot. And you're willing, perhaps, to have someone help you, right? But if I'm in pain because I have something in my eye, and I'm like this, and someone's like, don't worry, I'll, I'll help you. I look up, and a person come up to me has, like, a two-by-four coming out of their head, and maybe there's, like, blood streaming down their face, I may be like, sir, thank you for your offer to help, but you need to go to the emergency room. Like, your problem in this moment is far greater than whatever I'm dealing with. Before we can help others, or maybe before we want others to help us, we need to do some serious looking inward. We need to look inward before we look outward. But this too is hard because it's so much easier when we face a conflict with somebody, when we're in a situation where someone, our fight or flight mechanism is kicking in. It's so much easier to identify what the other person has done rather than look at maybe how we've contributed to this conflict. It's so much easier for me to look at the world, to look at the church, look at the culture, look at the family, friends, job, like whatever it is, whoever you're dealing with. It's so much easier to see all that they've done wrong to contribute to this problem all the issues in the world. It's much harder to be honest, look inside and say, what have I done 
to contribute to this? What do I need to fix in my own life? What plank do I need to remove from my own head before I go and try to start taking people's specks out of their eye? And what's really cool, uh, one thing that's really cool, is that when I was preparing this, I found a whole bunch of quotes from different people who have said things very similar to Jesus. So as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, someone who believes that Jesus is totally unique, God in the flesh, it's not like, I mean, I think if Jesus says it, that's enough. I, I think it's true. But as far as just taking a step beyond that, looking at something that, you know, if you're not there, if you're kind of like, eh, I'm not sure about Jesus in this one, maybe the fact that other people have said very similar things could even tip us over the edge and make us really consider what he is saying here. So apparently um, the Buddha lived before, uh, centuries before Jesus. He said, one should establish oneself in what is proper, then only should one instruct others. Rumi, who was a Muslim poet in the Middle Ages, said, Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote, Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson once quipped, If you can't even clean up your room, then who the hell are you to give advice to the world? So, again, I think it's enough that Jesus said it, But the fact that a lot, and we could probably find many more people who have said very similar things, this principle that we need to look inside ourselves and start putting our own world in order before we can look outside, I think is something we should take very seriously. We can look at the golden rule at the end of the passage I read a minute ago where Jesus says, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I don't mind if the person coming to confront me to point out the speck in my eye who looks at something in my life who wants to fix a conflict I don't mind if that person is not perfect because nobody's perfect. I I understand that. And if they think, if they come to me and they're acting like they're perfect, if they're coming at me from a position of like, I have my whole life perfectly in order and I'm going to fix you, I'm suspecting there's a little hypocrisy there. And Jesus warns against hypocrites. I'm okay if they're not perfect. I at least want the person coming to help me to be making an effort to take the plank out of their own eye, to be making an effort to grow and to change. It's not like this is something that ever stops. When we move from looking inward at our own lives to looking outward to help others, it's not like we say, I'm done now, I'm good. Like, it's always a constant back and forth. Look inward, fix yourself, look outward, help others. Look inward, help yourself, look outward. It goes back and forth, back and forth. So we look inward, we set our own life in order. Another element that we can use when we start to or desire to wage peace with others is simply employ wisdom. Jesus had that great phrase in the scripture where he talked about don't throw your pearls to pigs or your sacred things to to swine or to dogs because they'll turn and tear you to pieces. And that's pretty interesting imagery. I mean, I feel like I would remember that. Uh, This imagery that you have the pigs to feed and you go and you're like, here you go, guys, have some jewelry. And they try to eat the jewelry and they get really angry so they decide to eat you instead. Like that's going to... That sticks in your mind. That's a good, that's good imagery. Like, good job, Jesus. That's great. I mean, you're going to remember that. But what does it mean? Like, it's kind of strange. Like, what's he saying there? And at the very least, I think what Jesus is saying is that if the people, if the dogs and the pigs symbolize people, which kind of sounds a little mean, but we'll leave that one for another discussion some other time. But if the dogs and the pigs represent people and the sacred things or the jewels represent words or truth, 
I think at the very least what Jesus is saying is be cautious in how you handle words in regards to other people. If we approach someone that we are in a conflict with, if we seek to wage peace with somebody and we just are haphazardly tossing truth bombs at them with no care of how it's heard, no care of the situation, no looking inward, no anything else, just this is the truth, deal with it. That person may not hear the truth that we're presenting in the way we desire and it may make things worse and they may turn and hopefully not literally tear us to pieces but peace is not going to result from just tossing out truth with no with no wisdom so we employ wisdom and then as we employ wisdom in relation to others uh, i think another point that we can draw from jesus's teachings here is that being wise means wanting the best for the other person as well as the best for yourself. So once we remove the plank and take a deep breath, do all these things, we're ready to maybe approach other people, deal with the issue at hand. The beginning of Matthew 18, Jesus talked about if a brother or sister has sinned against you, go and talk to that person. I think the assumption here is that the other person is a brother or a sister. Or not the assumption. Jesus says the other person is a brother or sister. The assumption from that I would make is that this is someone you have some sort of relationship with. Some sort of mutual connection in which you can talk to that person and relate to them as someone you know. And the goal in this relationship, then, is not merely the absence of conflict, but replacing that conflict with something better. Peace, as we're talking about, as I'm thinking about, as I'm talking about this morning, peace is not just absent of conflict. You can avoid bringing up, you can run away, you can have the flight aspect of fight or flight. You can avoid bringing up the issue. You can pretend everything's fine. You can never talk about those hard issues under the surface. And you can call that peace. But I don't think that's really peace. Or you can just destroy the person you're in conflict with. You can win them over to your side or bend them to your will or however you're going to do that. You can fight. Sometimes we call that peace, but I don't think that's the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. I think peace is not, again, just the absence of conflict. Peace is the replacement of that conflict with something positive, with something good, with love. The word here is a word here we could use is shalom. It's a Hebrew word that's frequently in the Bible. And shalom is the word that's often translated peace, and it connotes a wholeness, a completeness, a sense that everything is as it should be. And we see Jesus in this. When Jesus became human, when, when God became human in the person of Jesus, and Jesus went through the world and did his life, his teachings, he could have simply left there were other Jewish ideas in those days who said the world is falling apart, so go into the desert and meditate. Jesus could have avoided conflict. He could have had the flight side of things. Or there was the option that Jesus could have simply destroyed his enemies. The night he was arrested, there was, there's a part of the Bible where Jesus says, I could call down legions of angels and destroy everybody who's opposing me, but I'm not going to. So Jesus had these op other options, avoiding it, running away, destroying it. But in the place of that, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, waged peace with humanity to create a relationship of love between God and humans. 
And I believe that that way of acting, the way that God has acted towards us in Jesus, is the way we're called to act towards other people. God wanted what was the best for us. We should want what's the best for other people in our waging peace. But there's one other point that I think kind of goes along with this. I think it's important to say. And that is that as we seek to wage peace with others, as we are seeking to be wise, we sometimes need to remove ourselves from the situation. There's an assumption that I'm making when I'm thinking about you or me waging peace with somebody. And again, it's that, that there's a mutual connection, that there's a way that you feel like you can go talk to that person that there's a mutual understanding, there's a previous friendship perhaps that has been broken. And the reality is that not all situations have that mutuality in them. That a lot of situations have a sort of uneven power dynamics where one person has a lot of power, maybe they have a lot of fight, and the other person is abused or oppressed or beaten down. And I think if we're going to think about Jesus, God had all the power in the universe. God laid that power aside to become human and walk alongside us. So if we're going to emulate Jesus, the message of Jesus to people with power, to people with privilege, is yes, you need to lay aside that power and go to others. But if people are oppressed or abused or being destroyed and beaten down, the message to them is not just accept that abuse, accept the status quo, don't talk about it. Because again, that's not peace. True peace is not just the absence of conflict and is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of love. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, True peace is not merely, merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. So peace does not happen when an abused person just stops talking about the abuse and then everybody pretends everything's okay. Peace does not happen when uh, someone just accepts the status quo. And if someone thinks that is still peace, if someone looks at that and says, well, that's peace because no one's complaining anymore, I would suggest or argue that that person still might have a plank sticking out of their head that they need to remove so they can pursue what peace really is. So, once we've been patient, once we've taken control of our elephant, maybe employed some wisdom, thought about the best thing for the other person, the best thing for us. I think another thing we get from Jesus' teaching here is that waging peace requires true and real listening. Proverbs chapter 12, uh, another verse in there. I think I read a verse from Proverbs 12 earlier. I think this is verse 15. It might be 16. I lost track of which was which. But it says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Before we talk, we need to listen. Before we maybe say our side of what's going on, we need to share, hear what the other side is. Because maybe when we're in a conflict with somebody and we seek to wage peace with them, maybe we don't have the whole story ourselves. Maybe, like I said earlier, we have our interpretation of what's going on and we want to press that and win. But maybe the other person has a different interpretation. Maybe the other person has some facts we don't have and we need to listen to what that person has to say. The challenge is that we don't at least I don't, do good job listening. I know I've been in so many situations, whether it's an argument with somebody or just a friendly discussion, where as the other person is talking, all of a sudden I realize, you know what? I'm not actually listening to this person. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. And I think that happens, I would imagine I'm not the only person in this room that that deals with that. 
But in the terms of waging peace, if the person we're in conflict with is, is talking to us and we're not listening, we're just thinking about how we can convince them that we're right, again, the plank may be still be in the eye, maybe we're more in the fight than the actual one in the peace side of things. We need to truly listen to what that person has to say. Carl Rogers was a psychotherapist in the 20th century, and he suggested a really helpful experiment for use in, in conflict, just maybe use in daily life in general. He said, each person can speak for himself only after he has restated the ideas and the feelings of the previous speaker accurately and to that speaker's satisfaction. So instead of thinking about what you're going to say when the, when the other person's done talking, hear what they're saying, say to them, I hear you are saying this, that, and the other thing. And they can say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Or, no, you still don't get it. Before you can defend yourself, listen to what the other person is saying. I think it's the golden rule again. Do unto others. We want people to listen to us. We want people to care for us. We want people to approach us in good faith. We want people to engage us as the people we are, not as some stereotype. We want people to recognize that we all deal with conflict and deal with all these things differently. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. So on and so forth. Some of us run from conflict. Some of us relish it. And if we want to actually wage peace with people, we need to approach them, listen to them, and hear where they're really coming from. Just as we want them to hear us, listen to us, and know where we are coming from. Another point in terms of waging peace, I would say, is uh, waging peace means sometimes seeking help from neutral other people. Even we work hard on listening, even maybe we do all these things, it's still not working. There's still something going on there. Matthew 18, Jesus did mention uh, that if you're talking to this person and, and it's still not resolved to get another friend or someone else to come and help you. Just about last week, I think it was, uh, one of the students at Penn State Berks I work with came up to me and, and shared with me that uh, her kind of friend group from the last fall semester, the people that she had met, got to know as, as a freshman, like your first friends at college, uh, going into the spring semester now, this friend group has kind of disintegrated. Specifically, two of her friends are really at each other's throats. And she has found herself stuck in the middle, trying to mediate between her two friends who are just not getting along. She asked me for some advice. I tried to give her a little bit of advice just based on what she told me. Mostly my advice was just encouragement to keep showing love and to you know, keep trying to, to help her friends. But over time, as I talked to her, and I think, so in this situation, she is someone who is kind of serving as that mediator, which is great. Sometimes even the mediator has to get help from other people. That's kind of where I came in. But as I shared with her and talked to her and listened to what she had to say, one of the pieces of advice I offered was that there's a realization that other human beings sometimes aren't going to change their minds, that there's only so much she can do. So on one hand, I encourage her to, to keep on doing everything she's doing and trying to be a mediator. On the other hand, it was, you still have responsibilities. You still have classes. You need to do the things in your life. And these other people you're dealing with, they have free will. They have choice. They can choose to try to re uh, reconcile or not to reconcile. Which leads into what I think is my final point in terms of waging peace. Wisdom means knowing that there is only so much that we can do when we seek to wage peace with others. 
Jesus addresses this possibility also at the end of Matthew 18 when he said, uh, if someone will not listen once all these other avenues have been explored, treat that person as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Which may sound harsh. It's kind of mean. Gentile or tax collector? That's what he's saying. Ostracize them? And that is not what Jesus is saying. Because if you look at the stories of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Jesus, when he engaged with pagans, Gentiles, tax collectors, like outsiders, his attitude to them was always love, openness, and more love. So if we're going to treat people as a sort of last resort, like a pagan or tax collector, that is not to ostracize them, to slam the door and give up. It's to love them when they're ready to receive that love. You see, the people that Jesus was harshest with were the religious insiders, the people that couldn't admit they had the plank sticking out of their eye, the people that thought they were perfect, the people that thought they were good enough. Those were who Jesus was harshest with. It's the pagans and the tax collectors, the outsiders that Jesus always was willing to show love to. And I feel like ending on a note that sometimes as we seek to wage peace with others, sometimes we're going to fail in that or peace is not going to happen. It's kind of a depressing place to end. But that's where we're going to end. Because it's real. It's possible. And uh, if God is our model, as I said before, God comes to us in the person of Jesus. God makes the first move. And that's our model of how we wage peace with others. We go to other people. We don't avoid conflict. We go to them, not to fight and crush them, but to, to resolve, to wage peace, to create something good, not just the absence of conflict. But I can't get away from the fact that God is our model, and when Jesus came to earth, and he was the wisest person that ever lived, he never threw his pearls in front of the pigs, he still was crucified. Now, we could say, of course, maybe that was his plan all along, and I'm not going to say that's not true. But I am going to draw some encouragement from the fact that we can, that, 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 this, that Jesus being crucified reminds us that we can have the best intentions. We can have all the patience in the world. We can take a plank out every single morning we wake up, just pulling planks out of our own heads. We can go to people and listen. We can get mediators, help, all kinds of things. But sometimes it's just not going to work out. But I don't think failure is the right term, though, to use. Because, yes, Jesus was killed on the cross, but he rose again. And the story of God waging peace with humanity does not end with death. It ends with new life. And I find encouragement in the fact that when I look in the mirror, when I take my planks out of my eye Monday morning... And I look in the mirror before I go to bed at night, and I've seen three more have grown out of there. And I realize that, you know what, I'm a mess, and I am broken, and I failed at waging peace, and I said something sarcastic to the person that was yelling at me or whatever. And you know what? God hasn't given up on me yet. I may be that pagan or tax collector, and God has not given up on me. So if I feel that I'm seeking to wage peace with somebody, and I feel like it's failing... Maybe there comes the point where I have to not, I have to kind of just step away. But that stepping away does not mean giving up hope. Maybe being hopeful, maybe treating people like 
when all else has failed and all we have left is hope, treating people like a pagan or a tax collector. Maybe being hopeful means sharing a prayer in that prayer box back there so that the deacon team and the pastors can pray for you. If there's a situation at work, you don't have to say the name. You don't have to say your name. God knows your name, but prayer is helpful. Feel free to write it down. Maybe all you can do at this point in the conflict is write down a prayer. And you can take assurance that we will pray for you. Maybe being hopeful means sending a Christmas card or a birthday card to somebody each year where you have no other relationship with them anymore, but you just keep sending that card. I'm here. If you ever want to talk again, door's open. Here's a card. Maybe being hopeful means replacing the anger and the frustration over the seeming failure to resolve this conflict. Replacing that in your own life with something positive. Okay, so this person is not in a place where they want to resolve conflict right now, and I can dwell on that and be frustrated and mad. Or maybe I can find an opportunity to bring good in the world somewhere else. Again, Koinos has opportunities at the Opportunity House, which I'm sure if you're interested, you could look into that. Um, The deacon team, we always need people to cook a meal for people when they have babies. And what better way to bring good in the world than to give a meal to a new family? So replace that anger and frustration with something good in your own life. Maybe being kind means simply, or maybe keeping, keeping hope means simply being kind. You can't talk to the person, but you can smile at them when you see them in the hallway. And Mother Teresa did say, peace begins with a smile. So we cannot change others. But we can change ourselves. We can take the planks out of our own eyes. We can work on being wise. We can work on listening. And we can always keep the door open in the hope that eventually peace will happen. So may we continue to be hopeful as we wage peace with others. So usually we do a time of Q&A this morning. Um, If you want to yell at me, sorry, we're not going to do it this morning. Um, We have some other things we need to do, but I will be available in the back if you, if there's anything I wasn't clear on or you have any questions, we just want to chat. Uh, I'll be available in the back afterwards. You can drag me, uh, yell at me if you want. Don't yell at me, please. I don't want to. But um, we're going to actually move into a time of communion this morning. And uh, communion, if you are uh, maybe new and you're not uh, familiar with it, it's a, it's a, very long ritual that has been around for centuries since the beginning. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he broke bread, shared wine with his disciples. And the bread and the, and the grape juice that we take this morning symbolize the broken body of Christ and his shed blood for us. They, they remind us of the extent that God has gone to, um, to wage peace with us. And that as we take these things, these just very basic bread and juice into our body, that we're in some way reaffirming our commitment to who God is and what God has done. And there's another passage of scripture I want to share with you. If you're doing the Renew reading, this is one, I guess about a week ago, it was one of the first, it was during the first week. Uh, my wife read this and she knew I was starting to think about the sermon this morning. And she was like, you totally have to share this. Um, with, on, on. So it's going to, I'm going to read it. It's from Matthew chapter 5, it's verses 23 and 24. Uh, it's Jesus talking, he says, therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So, I'm not saying that if you have a conflict, you should like leave now. um, Because Andrew told me not to say that. But, uh, I think at the very least, when I look at this passage, and this shows to me that Jesus takes conflict within the family of God 
just within the family of humanity probably too, very seriously. This is not like a secondary thing to be taken lightly. This is something I think that as we come forward to, to share in this tradition, this ritual together, on one hand we're remembering what God has done for us. But right along with that, we need to take seriously our commitment on what that means for our relationship to other people. So I, I just really encourage each of us as we walk forward in a moment to think, or yeah, to think that this is not just an empty ritual that we just do because we're at church and we're doing it, but this is something that as we do it, it's a time to look inward. If you think of some of those planks in your eye, but may it also be a time to think about the people in our lives that we might need to wage peace with. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then feel free as you uh, desire to come up um, the sides, and then loop around and go back down the middle to your seat. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, morning. Thank you for the opportunity for all of us to be here together. Thank you for the great extent that you have gone to wage peace with us. That no matter how many times we turn away as individuals, as humanity, that you've never given up on us and you never will. And I pray, Lord, no matter how difficult it is, that we would have that same attitude towards people in our lives. I pray that we would be instruments of your peace. And I pray you would give us wisdom and grace as we seek to do that. In Christ's name we pray.